Tuesday, June 24th. Uh, this is LA Podcast. Scott Frazier, Alyssa Walker, Hayes Davenport. We have a packed episode. We have Dr. Pavo Monkinen at El Pavo. He's a UCL, he's one of these Twitter professors. <laughs> um, at UCLA, he's a planning professor. He's been working with uh, SCAG to determine our housing needs for the regional housing needs assessment. Sounds boring, but it is actually very interesting and crazy, and we are going to be talking with him about that later in the episode. Let's start with L.A. stories. Alyssa, do you have an L.A. story this week? I have a story. What's going on this week for you? So picture this. You're invited to moderate a panel on transportation equity in Los Angeles. It's never going to happen it's for me. I can't even picture it. This is your every day. This is, this is what I do like yeah, four <laughs> out of five days of the week. And I was in the arts district, far south arts district, probably not. Is this still our sister? I was on the other side of Alameda. Yeah, he's just like, let me you, get... You are still in our district. So it's like the row, which we've talked about before, which okay. is where I was at the for the Los Angeles Design Festival, which was great. But it was at the row, which is very transit inaccessible. And also, as I unless figured out... Unless you're coming by Greyhound. Unless you're coming by Greyhound, in which case the Greyhound lot is across the street. Greyhound station is across the street. They have shuttles from Union Station and 7th and Metro, but I could never right. find them or locate where they were waiting for me to take me to those places. Anyway, I tried to maybe take transit. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to ride a jump bike from the row to the WeWork in the SoCal gas tower or gas company tower, whatever you call it, for the event. So I get on a jump bike and I immediately realized there is no safe way to ride a bike from the row to Uh the gas company tower. Like none, like zero. Because it would be great if there were bike lanes that continued through Skid Row, I feel comfortable riding on those streets, but there's no bike lane and there are very fast cars going down 7th. And so there's bike lanes on 7th and then they stop because yep. people in Skid Row don't deserve bike lanes. Right. Or bike share. The bike share stops through that area as well. So you can't, I would love to take Metro bike, but there, there's one in the row that, that there's no other stations if you tried to like get around that area. That's a different story for another time. So I kind of try to, plot out what I'm going to do. And I decide I'm going to ride up Central, another very wide, very scary street. Yeah, landing strip. And I'm going to go up to Second, which is the street that I'm super comfortable riding on. But then I get to Third and I'm like, okay, like I'm just going to go over, Mm. you know, I'll just squeeze over like two blocks and then get on the really nice Spring and Main bike lanes, right, to go um, kind of zigzag over to where I need to go uh, at the gas company tower. And I'm riding along and I get hit by a car. Mm. Wow. Very slow moving car. Yep. A very, very nice person who hit me with a car got out immediately and said he was very sorry and didn't see me. And I really only have scratches on my legs. It's truly just a scratch. Like I did not get hurt. Um, you have a license plate tattoo. I have a license plate tattoo that will hopefully scar. And uh, you can't actually see the uh, letters, but... Um, how do you respond? Like, what, did you did you see this car coming? Like, what, what happened? I did see the car was pulling out of a parking garage. And okay. you assume they will stop. Yeah. But they I don't. shouldn't have assumed that. But he, luckily, they were going really, really, really slow, right? So as they, yeah. if anything, they did the right thing coming out of a parking garage and going really slow. So that's fine. And I was on, I would say, the left side of the street. So... I wasn't on the right side of the street. It's a one-way street. It's a one-way street. It's a one-way street. I was going two blocks to get on the spring and main, yeah. you know, bike awesome cycle tracks. So why would I go all the way to the yeah. right-hand side to go all the way back to the left and get on and get on the, yeah, the, you don't, you don't the bike to. lanes? I don't have to. So it was fine. 
I, the people who saw it happen came over and made sure I was okay. And they both told me that street was too dangerous to ride bikes on oh, and I should not be riding God my bike. Wow. They're going to tell you about biking and yeah. all that. Wow. <laughs> well, I think they, you know, they were, they had been around, they had seen other things happen. They said, especially that, that garage was like a blind spot uh, mm-hmm. for people coming up in it. Yeah. And I went back actually back there to the scene of the crime and looked and it, it actually is kind of obstructed where the cars come up. So I don't think he would have ever seen me like right. I, it, I completely. And why would you think someone would be biking on a street that busy? So, you know, even a bright red uh, tank like mm-hmm. jump bike. And I was totally fine. It wasn't even that scary. I kept riding. I rode to the event. It was no big deal. Um, but then I woke up and I got to tell a great story at the panel that I moderated about transportation yes. equity, which was had the people from like the also mayor's office. Convenient. Yeah, they're like, did you etch those into your like um, but a bunch of people there who, you know, got to hear my story and people from the mayor's office and Move LA and Investing in Place and Metro, all these great you know, representatives. We all discussed all of our transportation equity horror stories, which are all mm-hmm. very bad. But then- then went home, was fine. Woke up in the middle of the night and realized that if it had been an SUV instead of a little sedan, oh my God. it probably would have killed me. Yeah. Because I went very slowly onto the hood of this mm-hmm. car. And if it had hit me just a little bit higher, it could have broken my leg yeah. or, and I could have, I would have gone down. Just knocked you into the street for sure. Yeah. yeah. And then they might have continued driving over me or one of the other super fast cars coming off the whatever bridge, fourth street bridge or whatever would have also hit me coming down the other way. Right. So I feel very, it's a, it was a funny coincidence that it was the day before summer started. And I tried to have this campaign to get all bike lanes protected by the start of summer, my summer lanes initiative. And I was one of the people that could have most benefited from this. If those protected lanes that are great on spring and Maine had just been extended in a way that could get the people from the arts district to those lanes, there's no protected infrastructure that goes further to get to get all these people and then there's bike lanes like on santa fe or something there's a bunch of lanes and trying to get people to ride and there's a bike shared station at the row and they're just stranding us in places where there is no safe place to go i just it's the saddest thing is if you were martyred by this suv and you and they it's hypothetical and yes and they instituted the summer lanes program in honor of you yes please feel free to do that but then they couldn't name them after you why? Walker because lanes? Because they leave <laughs> only for pedestrians. For bikes. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I, I have to say, too. I'm funny. glad you uh, thought about that a I lot. I mean, it's sad. Make sure that the, my death would be represented. Uh, yeah, the, 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 like, terrible pedestrian and bike infrastructure in that part of downtown, too. Like, you have all of these 18-wheelers coming in and out of, like, the, the warehouses there, chopping up the pavement so that it's basically, it looks like an earthquake has just hit every time you go through mm-hmm. there. I actually have zero reservations about making this claim, even though I have done no research whatsoever on it. That is the part of Southern California where the highest percentage of people do all of their trips by walk or bike. Yes. Undoubtedly. No doubt in my mind. Um, and like you know you just see like people riding their bike on these broken streets you know where semi trucks are coming out of uh blind alleys on a regular basis but like they don't deserve safe infrastructure because they're homeless is like is very unfortunate what i was thinking when i was right because i rode through um, you know i ride through a lot of the streets of skid row again doesn't 
a lot, like you said, a lot of people are on bikes. It's actually quite safe. There's a lot of people walking in on bikes. It's like a the safe only dangerous place to people go. like to drive through there pretty fast. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that other other people are probably uncomfortable. With that, but yes. I, but I, but one thing I was thinking as I was driving through is the big, you know, complaints about the sidewalks being blocked. Just close like all the streets in Skid Row and turn them into like plazas. It's already and make kind it of a safe. pedestrian plaza. Yeah, make it like a safe place for people to be and do what they got to do and and walk and bike and give bike share and other access to these types of transportation because it's true i mean we we can't just like keep marginalizing every group so nobody has space so the 18 wheelers can get through and and potentially pull out of parking garages and, and hit people but it made me very sad um not just my experience i was fine but if somebody i bet people who work in places where they have to use bikes or walk these last miles in some cases to get places get hit like that all the time yeah and never get attention for it or get right. to go to panels to talk about their feelings and it is really fucking scary and i i don't even like know what to do except just try to ban all suvs as soon as possible even though that didn't it's not what hit me i would say that was my experience too when i got hit i was a sedan and i just went right up on the hood and if it, i you're totally right if it had been an suv i would have been smeared and that's proven by data now yep. they are showing that this uptick in sales for suvs are increasing our pedestrian death rate but. i got uh hit by a crv and i went fly like again low speed i went flying it was very early in the morning so i didn't get hit by anybody else but yeah it's it's on a bike on a bike yeah three people in a room doing a podcast <laughs> all of whom have been <laughs> hit by we a car get our <laughs> podcast estates at order all, all of whom have been we hit by cars. the next episode chances? will be dedicated to you if you if, if one of the hosts <laughs> killed on a bike why are you thinking so much about how to memorial <laughs> what do you mean Sorry. what do you mean why everyone um, and i also was wearing a helmet just so everybody I got a lot of questions about that i wear a helmet as we yeah. talked about before I, every single trip i wear it Every single time I leave And now the true bike fringe will come out and say, well, that's when you got hit because wearing a helmet is actually a very helpful addition uh, to the conversation. My LA story is also bike related. I was going down um, to the protest at the Metropolitan Detention Center. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. Today, yeah. And I had this question of how to... So the the Metropolitan Detention Center is is a place where... um, People are held by ICE pre-trial, basically, um, and uh, it's right across from Union Station. So I was trying to figure out how I was going to get down there. Could I either take the bus or the train, both of which are running on Metro Sunday headways. So mm-hmm. it was probably going to take me like over an hour to get to the most transit accessible place um, in in all of L.A. And I just didn't want to go through that. So um, so. Uh, Hashtag Hyperion Hyperlocal. They just put in a yes. Metro bike share at uh, the intersection of blah, blah, blah. You know, the intersection. You, you know what capital we're talking T, about. Capital I. <laughs> Where? Which one? I don't even know. The that. one we always talk about. Hillhurst, Virgil Sunset Hollywood Hills. Oh, yeah. I just got one at, at Vermont and Beverly. This yeah. is great news. So, so they're, they're rolling those out. It is to, to uh, call back to the discussion that we just had about taking up sidewalk space to do this. It is right on the sidewalk. It takes up half the sidewalk now. There's plenty of uh, road space that they could have done that in. Uh, but I decided to take the Metro bike to get downtown on sunset. And, you know, you're kind of like my Alyssa, you're like my my biking idol because you do it with such like fearlessness. And it sucks that. Not anymore. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm just kidding. That. I rode the next day and the next day was fine. Um, I, I do it with a lot of uh, trepidation. So I was like riding the, the Metro bikes down sunset. Uh, it's pretty hilly. And I hadn't actually 
I had been on a metro bike, but pretty much only in. You have an electric they one. They have downtown. Electric, no, no. no, yeah. no. The, uh, at this station, there were only the the manual ones, which I'd heard in the past were kind of like uh, lemons. I don't really know anything about. They're fine. They're like they're, I mean, wrong nice with and heavy when you're. Yeah, going you want up them to be they're heavy. They're pretty. They're yeah. pretty heavy. Um, and I I just like I pity anybody who has to downshift using those things because I was like trying to go up a hill. As soon as you drop a gear, it feels like you're riding a toy bike. Like it doesn't yeah. does not feel like you're moving anywhere. And um, I just I felt extremely vulnerable on Sunset, where you have, of course, a ton of traffic. There was a Dodgers game as I was going down there, and uh, but that was how I got decided to get to the um, to the protest. Undeniably, it's nice to have that alternative, especially if transit is not going to be a viable alternative going forward. So that's perfect for a Dodger game if you know that the sure, you yeah. can just squeeze by it. If only there was a protected lane, absolutely on sunset, I, and there's room. I had to as I was going down. Like maybe that should be my LA story. As I was going on Sunset, it. it you see the city in such a different way as you're biking than in a car or even on the bus, which I take the bus down sunset almost every day. And it's, it's just kind of interesting. You know, you like, you see, uh, <laughs> I had the, the really funny, um, uh, the, the, the newspaper language would be like racially charged incident oh. as I was biking where I pulled up, but you guys see how I'm dressed today. So I, I pulled up at a red light and I just like looked to my left and there's a, a very uh, demure looking white lady hurriedly rolling up her window <laughs> as I was stopped next to her. The um, way Scott is dressed is he's wearing a shirt and shorts. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. you see, I, I, I shouldn't be in public. Maybe, maybe were you wearing a Dodger I hat? was wearing my Dodger maybe cap. Maybe she wasn't a Dodger fan. Yeah. <laughs> She's a Giants fan. Uh, you know, like you, you see uh, the, the jump bikes. Just kind of, I saw a, a scattering of jump bikes kind of blocking the sidewalk. Elderly uh, Latinx man pushing a cart with like uh, a ton of belongings for sale. It looked like uh, trying to like navigate this uh, stretch of sunset that was entirely blocked off by these bikes. You really get like a, a sense of like how people are moving through space. And you do think there are a lot of people for whom... Uh, this experience of just like going through their neighborhood is 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 difficult. You and say that you ride scared on Sunset. I it's when I'm riding, I don't notice those details at all. The only thing I am thinking is is that car door gonna open? Oh, I was yeah. So you're you're like looking to the right at the cars. You're looking to the left as like uh, other cars drive past you very yeah. quickly. The way that I uh, manage that fear is. I sing aloud to myself. That's, and I have a weird, that same weird instinct yeah. to sing on and a bike. calm yourself. By I, is that yeah. what it is? That's, I, that's, how, that's how I that's feel. Wild. And then I uh, kind of, uh, at certain points, I'm able to look around and see what's going on. Yeah. I have a good story and a bad story. Good story on Thursday. Uh, we had our SELA fundraiser at The Friend, which was a great venue. It went awesome. We raised over $40,000. Wow. A huge pile of cash. We got a matching yeah. grant of 10000 from the Weingart Foundation from Miguel Santana, who's there now. Wow. Uh, and it was a huge success. It was awesome. Then we had the showers on uh, Saturday, which anyone is welcome to volunteer at. You can sign up at SELANHC.org. Uh, and we had a great turnout for that. And this guy was there. One of the volunteers came up to me and said, hey, there's a guy here who I've been talking to for a while and he wants to get clean. He wants to get into a detox program today, if possible. And he'll turn in his dope and just like he, he wants to get better. And so we said, great, this is fantastic. Let's make some calls and let's figure out where we can send him. We start calling around. Uh, we do. We find some options at uh, sobering centers, which are basically where you can go to kind of sleep it off. It's 
pretty much a room where you can sit. But they said there's no, it's not like a chemical treatment. It's like a detox where you sweat it out, right. where you can have seizures and possibly die. It's like torture. It's yeah. like a famously horrible thing to go through. Mm-hmm. The alternative, like detox is like a chemical detox where they like bring you down gradually and it's a much more uh, humane yeah. process. Uh, they also said that you have to be high, visibly high okay. uh, going in. And so that was the first question when I called. They said, well, is he high? Because like, you know, we, yeah. we ask that. And if he's not high, he can't. What's like, he supposed to do? Get high to go in? I mean, that was kind of the implication. Uh, to go in there, and then they would possibly like help him get into a detox facility, uh, but he didn't want to go through the sobering process because it's so horrible. So we started trying to find detox facilities. Yeah, there are a few places. None of them are open on weekends. Obviously, this is a nine to five uh, uh, job. Sure. People who need to detox. So this is like an ongoing. I'll, you know, I'll update on this. We're uh, we're talking to him again on Monday, and when the treatment center is open, uh, we can have more of these conversations and see what the opportunities are but man that's really really hard speaking of things that are difficult let's talk about bus rapid transit through the valley uh for for a couple of years now metro has been making these plans for a rapid bus line to run in a dedicated lane east west across like basically the whole valley to connect the orange line to the new uh, east valley light rail that runs from silmar like down to van nuys this is a 28 by 28 project Mm -hmm. probably one of the cheaper ones for sure right one of the more doable ones uh metro dedicated 180 million dollars from the measure m budget for it it was already the first uh first project in line to get measure m money so yes yeah so it was it was uh this is this is an interesting project because i i wrote about this a couple of years ago for my uh defunct blog redline reader uh as as metro was putting together the project list for measure m we 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 acquire hired Redline Reader, yeah. so that's part of <laughs> that's part of LA Podcast Inc. Uh, so b- basically, we, we were putting together this Measure M project list. We were talking about uh, 120 billion dollars to build anything that anybody could think of, right? And then we had to cut that down to um, only a handful of the things that people actually wanted. Uh, but uh, the way that this uh, Northern San Fernando Valley bus rapid transit line got pr- uh, proposed was because State Senator uh, Bob Hertzberg. Uh, who represents a good chunk of the valley, went up to Cal State Northridge and basically said, this is the biggest job center in the valley. It's one of the biggest job centers in the county. ton of transit ridership, and it is not represented anywhere in Measure M. So we want to have more transit service to Cal State Northridge, basically, or uh, or he was saying he would organize people to uh, oppose Measure M. So that CSUN was, is really behind that too, by the way. They want um, absolutely, stu- yeah, and the students uh, want it. CSUN did a great job, I would say, uh, and and, uh, and Bob Hertzberg. They, they were kind of the model for how to how to get your way within the the process that Metro had created. I think they did a really good job. They weren't saying no to transit. They were saying we uh, we think that CSUN has an integral place to play in the future uh, in the future of the transit development in the San Fernando Valley. Give us good bus service, and we'll use it. Yeah. Fast forward a couple of years. And something very predictable is happening in the valley. They've been studying a few different routes, but they're zeroing in on a couple along uh, Nordhoff Street in Northridge, a quiet suburban community that's having. But that, but a street that is like six lanes wide. <laughs> quite, yes. quite it's suburban not a quiet yeah. street. <laughs> it's a very wide street. And also, I want to point something out since you talked about the CSUN, you know, making this happen. The school is not in session right now. Right. And why are they having these meetings yeah. and having public comment happen 
in the summer? That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I mean, you do kind of wonder, like, especially if the people that stand to benefit the most are very likely Cal State Northridge students. They are, without a doubt, stakeholders and important stakeholders for this project. Enter Save San Fernando Valley. A new, pretty Ooh, soon that? there's going to be no saveblank.com <laughs> URLs left. They're going to have to like buy them from each other. There's a flyer that they've been distributing that Alyssa posted. Uh, Alyssa, do you want to read this? And maybe if we could get um, some like very dramatic music, like maybe the um, Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> what I thought about this flyer that was so interesting is that it it really, I thought, made the a bus look really good because... Oh. The first image you see is, I think it's India. Is this India with all these little? Yes, it is with the tuk tuks. Yeah, little. It's like a. There's all these little tiny vehicles and and cars and trucks trapped in traffic on the right hand side, and then there's what looks like bus rapid transit just zooming Zooming. by on the left hand side. And then the other image is of a five story apartment buildings on either side of a single family (laughs) home. This is my favorite one, I will say. (laughs) And wait, I have to zoom in on what it says. It says. Okay, so, no so, privacy. Yeah, so under, <laughs> under the one with the buses going by freely, it says congestion all along Nordhoff. And then there's this, it's very reminiscent of the SB50 flavor of images of the two apartment buildings on either side of a single family home. It says no open space, no balconies, no setbacks, no courtyards. And then under the over the single family home, no privacy, living in the shadows of apartments. And then there's just a generic photo of maybe maybe some Nordoff. cars could that be, be Nordoff. <laughs> it actually looks like too narrow of a street to be Nordoff, so yeah. I don't think and then it said oh so side streets will be packed so it's maybe that's your you know suburban San Fernando street I, but I those are the images them. I do want I, me to read it I, I want to listen to read the text it. and this is the, the music cue and hopefully we get the effect I'm going for and if you could sure read it everybody. read it in the spirit that it was written Nordoff alert coming soon to your neighborhood save the San Fernando Valley Two to four car lanes will be removed from Nordhoff. Metro plans to run a dedicated busway down Nordhoff, reducing vehicle lanes to one or two in each direction. Oh my God. The road diet will cause massive traffic jams in our community with cut through traffic and parked cars spilling onto our residential streets. Parked cars spilling. I love that (laughs) that imagery. (laughs) How does this affect you? Number one. Our once quiet streets will become busy thoroughfares as traffic will divert through our neighborhoods. Number two, the busway will trigger automatic upzoning, allowing giant. I know, right? It's really sounding. Scott Wiener pulling the switch. (laughs) (laughs) Allowing giant apartment buildings to be built along Nordhoff. They rise out of the ground. (laughs) Also, this one also sounds good. Number three. The new apartments will have little to no parking requirements. Oh, no. Our streets will be filled up with parked cars. No parking for us. No parking for our visiting friends and family. And I'm going to add, except for the parking in our garages and our driveways (laughs) of our single family homes. And number four, this is the big, big argument. Our homes will decrease in value. Who will want to live in a neighborhood flooded with traffic, parked cars, and in the shadows of apartment buildings? I love that. There goes the neighborhood. Yeah. Is essentially. SaveSFB.com. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've heard that like homeowners and like local residents are the real beneficiaries, like um, like the people that lived there previously, the stakeholders right. are the ones that really benefit from this because their property values go up and right. they're... I mean, listen to these people when they tell you what they are worried about. Right. They're worried about their property values going down. There was a quote 
and I think uh, the Curbed article about it that uh, Elijah Chilin wrote, uh, that uh, Linda Allison of Northridge said, I'm not against public transportation, but I am against that route. I think it would strongly ruin the value of our homes. Strongly not just ruin. ruin. Wow. Strongly uh, ruin. This is, this is uh, so first of all, we should say, this group is small. This, this was a... They're always small. This was a small group of people at this meeting. It was, what, like 14 or 15 enough. people. But it's big enough to actually impact Metro's consideration of this route, because, which is a massive problem. Yeah, sources are reporting to LA Podcast that this bus rapid transit line has been pulled from the Metro board agenda. Right. Because of this group. It's consideration. To, it doesn't necessarily mean that the project as a whole is in jeopardy, but it's not good if your if your initial meeting, uh, the the board of directors of Metro is having second thoughts about the plan that they are putting forward. For, I mean, to say nothing of being able to have this project done by 2028, uh, it doesn't really say much for our resolution when it comes to tackling these projects uh, that we can't even stand up to a small group of homeowners who has a fallacious notion of what a, a bus rapid transit project even means for their neighborhood. And meanwhile, we had also from Metro Board meetings and other events this week, uh, the information that the bus lanes that they created in downtown LA to replace the Blue Line service that is going to be out for a while, another PSA from XRO and Blue Line are going to be interrupted through downtown for a while for now. So use this bus on Flower, they created this dedicated bus lane, and they are getting 60 buses per hour at peak times yeah. on this lane. No complaints. Few parked, uh, pre-parked cars maybe got yep. towed or whatever. They have Metro people out there, LAPD, enforcing it out there, making sure the lanes are cleared. 60 buses yep. per hour. That's a, a life-changing yeah. thing. That's a life-changing thing for people on those buses. I said online, and I will say it on the podcast, this bus lane can not ever be allowed to revert no. to private cars. Never. never. Like it can never go back because that, that would be such a tremendous setback. This is, it's in place. It's there. It's perfect. It's got a bus running once a minute. It just, it needs to stay there forever. But what about, do you think about the property values on Flower? I like, do you think that never think about the tuk -tuk's all Yeah, what about the up? privacy? What about the privacy that is being invaded? I, I will be damned if anybody will make me think. I'm going to make a poster that. that says like flower alert and it's going to be like all the benefits of the dedicated yeah. bus lane on flower. Even if the bus were just for Kenny Young, just going up and down, yeah. like to and from sure. school every day, it would be, I would yeah. defend it with my or wife. Yep. Student. Our listener, CSUN student, Kenny Young, who's written every, uh, written every bus in the, in the city. Uh, if you want to write your uh, Metro board member, about this bus rapid transit line in favor of it. Luckily, there's a link at savesfv.com that you can just click and send an email to the Metro board members. You might have to change the, the text that they generate for you, uh, <laughs> but at least it'll give you a little uh, email field up. Let's talk about, uh, Scott, you went to, you, you talked about you went yep. to the protest today at the MDC uh, in response to the Trump uh, ICE raids that he announced on Twitter last week where he said that millions of of people who were undocumented were going to be uh, arrested and deported from the country. The uh, initiative was centered around families. Yep. We heard. I'm interested in. Uh, you talked a, a little bit about this uh, on Twitter. How our local officials responded? Yeah. Uh, so uh, to to say before today, uh, sorry before uh, the, the the before the planned actions this weekend, 
there were statements coming out from uh, Sheriff Villanueva, from LAPD Chief uh, Michael Moore, that were basically just commenting on their stance with respect to the planned ICE actions. Uh, Villanueva said, quote, I strongly op- oppose President Trump's threat of threats of mass deportations. Uh, he called the actions irresponsible and unnecessary and said that uh, public safety was basically endangered by undocumented immigrants uh, not feeling safe enough to contact public uh, safety officials, which is something that we know is happening. Yeah, and I was ex- like looking specifically for that kind of response from right. him because this is someone who ran on, uh, unlike the his predecessor, Jim McDonald, keeping the sheriff's department out of uh, the business of raids and deportations right. and was endorsed by Churla. Who is coordinating coordinating these efforts to protect undocumented people from these raids. So I would say that was the absolute least he could do, but it is an actual strongly worded response, which is a little bit more than we got from some other people. Uh, Michael Moore of the LAPD, for his part, was uh, also trying to create that kind of distance between themselves and ICE, uh, saying that he was not going to allow his officers to take any part in the ICE actions. uh, And and, uh, he said explicitly, we are not an extension of ICE. After the fact, we should say that the, that Trump did not go through with this. He, he's postponing them. He said he's postponing them. Uh, I, I think that the ultimate effect that we end up with is a situation in which the people who are having to suffer the brunt of the cruelty of this administration, the uh, the people who are living in fear, are the non-citizens who are being told conflicting information um, that is having to be spread to them through groups like Churla, through uh, word of mouth from probably their children or uh, from relatives that they have or friends or family, this kind of filtering of information of something's going to happen, something's not going to happen, not knowing whether or not family is in immediate danger. But you, you basically have in President Trump a, a, a person of just completely a, a sickening lack of empathy who, uh, who doesn't really care whether this happens today or tomorrow or never because it affects him in no way except for that it, it juices up his uh, his voters in, in some regard. Um, and so he's just going to say whatever it is that m- might make him feel good in, in the moment. And it, on the other hand, it's having a very direct impact on, on just like millions of people throughout California in particular. So the thing that bothered me was Mayor Garcetti's response to this. And, um, and, and I, I think that I talk a lot about Mayor Garcetti and the way that he positions himself with respect to the Trump administration, particularly because this is Los Angeles. We have so many people who live here who are not citizens. We have so many people who live here who uh, are from the global south, who are from places where they have never had the protection of a of a government, really. And so it seems to me that it behooves Eric Garcetti, our mayor, to be that defender of these people who are our neighbors. He is Hispanic himself. That is something that, you know, he makes a lot uh, out of. Like he, he says it's a, a central part of his identity. So I think personally, I, I look for that in his responses. Instead, what we got was Claudia Pichuta of KNX 1070 actually posted on Twitter that she was with a group of journalists who were waiting after Trump had announced these uh, these ICE raids, waiting to hear from Eric Garcetti. And he just didn't show up. He just posted something on his uh, Instagram. A release or went out. Yeah, we got a release right. Friday afternoon or something, you know, with a bunch of language, never saying again 
sanctuary city or any of the terms that you would normally associate with these it's, know, it's kind of just like know your know your rights kind of thing, which is which is you know. It's good. The same thing that your, was repeated from you know money yeah, 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 yeah. up and down the the, the layers of government. Um, but then so after after Trump announced that he was calling off the raids, um, Hayes, do you have his quote? He he said I do. he was glad. Yes, he said glad the families in L.A. and across Americans can sleep a bit more soundly tonight. The use of fear and intimidation only underlines the urgency of comprehensive immigration reform. So to, to me, this really this response Whoa. really rubs me the wrong way. Like, glad that families can sleep more soundly. I, I In my uh, post on Twitter, I, I pulled up the, the article that was written by Matt Hamilton and Maya Lau in the L.A. Times, where they were talking to people who were directly affected by this, uh, including an undocumented Latinx woman who was on her way to college this fall. They talked to... Uh, the, the executive director of Churla. And the overwhelming reaction is, this is incredibly cruel. Not knowing whether or not these things are going to happen, being in these panicked group uh, group chats with your friends and family here and uh, in Central America, trying to determine whether or not your family members are going to know where you are in the next week or whether or not you are going to be en route to a detention facility somewhere. Having the president with really no warning decide, like like he's flipping a light switch, the raids are on, the raids are off. There's not really anything to me that suggests that people are feeling relieved that they're off for right now. Like yeah. you said, Hayes, they're postponed. Um, so I, I felt like that struck the wrong tone. And the worst part of it to me is yeah. that your takeaway is this is why we need immigration reform. Totally. Uh, for something like this, instead of just saying there's 375,000 people who live in the city who could have their lives ripped apart yeah. by this. And we, and I will, I'm their mayor and what I is, will what defend is, them with my life. And also Lorena yeah. Gonzalez said the exact right thing, I think, which uh -huh. is that the, the damage is done by this. This is the uh, right. assembly member. Uh, she said the effect of this in terms of like peacekeeping and like people actually being willing to report crimes and answering the door for the census when that comes just this heightened state of fear is like the damage is done just by the announcement even of if course. they postpone it permanently yeah i, uh, I absolutely agree with that and, and I, you, I mean you talk about the lack of empathy i think it's uh adam sir and i think the atlantic likes to say that the cruelty is the point and i yeah. think that has practical effects in a positive way for them they they want this this heightened state of fear yeah. uh that like that's that's by design i i i want to know like comprehensive immigration reform is something that has been said so many times by so many different people over the course of the past 30 years that is so as to be completely meaningless totally. i would love to know what it is that that garcetti means by that because it sounds like uh it's just a way to punt a particular political football away from you yeah i mean it does have meaning to me which is like it's a both sizing of like well we've got uh, to respect the legislature law, has to do something yes, here. yes. Uh, and, and it it's it, it seems wrong to me it seems again like this this is something that we've been talking about for a long time with garcetti this notion that uh, particularly as it appeared that he was getting ready to launch a presidential campaign, that he was not speaking to people who actually live here. And I, I feel like that has continued to be the case. This doesn't seem like a message that is really aimed at anyone in particular. It could be written by anybody. It doesn't have any of the mayor's personality in it. And it it seems like a weird moment to be checked out as the mayor of Los Angeles. I mean, especially since he was very willing to trot out the story of his great grandmother, his bisabuela, right. carrying uh, his grandparent over the border in her arms. It seems like this could be a relevant story yep. to, to, to bring out in this case, instead of just on Ezra Klein's podcast yep. or whatever. He should have been there today. Sorry. Sorry, Alyssa. 
That's, I, I know that's no, no offense to your me. close personal friend and the men who run podcasts. <laughs> he should. I think he should have been there today. I'm yeah. sure he was worried about getting yelled at. But I think if Churla, I've seen him at Churla events. I think if the people who were there running this had introduced him and said, "We're happy that he came here to support. Please, uh, like let him speak today." I think you wouldn't have like booed if Churla had been also, introducing him. Also, let's note something else about. The mayors, the the last time the family separation problem crisis became, this was like, a, you know, last year when right. they supposedly were any family. Separ- Again, it's come up in the news. We have basically concentration camps being run for children at our borders and, and adults. The mayors, all these mayors got together and went to the border um, last year to try to stop this and, and showed up and demanded things. And I see another great role being that could be played by these mayors, but is it because people are too busy actually running for president now or other things that they're not going this time or organizing in the same way? I mean, I mean maybe it's just not wanting to even stand next to Bill de Blasio, whose brand <laughs> is so radioactive that no matter what good think, you're trying to do. Maybe they're prepping for their debates. I mean, it all seems just so strange. Again, like where... Again, where the mayor with the profile that he has saying, OK, well, we're, we're not with this. Be at that border for those kids like that story. What you're saying is so that's such a, a great opportunity to show that L.A. and California yeah. and all these pe- people could be doing could be uh, doing more. At this I think point. absolutely. I mean, it, it, being the mayor is uh, on a certain level about being there, just like being present uh, and and showing that you actually care about uh, what's going on in your city. I think we see. Uh, something else that far, far from L.A., um, but something that's happening right now with Pete Buttigieg's, uh, mm-hmm. the response he's getting now that he's returned back to South Bend. But I, I would personally take, as an Angelino, I would take the I would take the comments and the forceful declamations of the Trump administration of a sitting mayor over a presidential sure. candidate any day. Uh, I mean, absolutely. Like, what what do the opinions of a presidential can- candidate really mean mm-hmm. to to somebody who lives in in Los Angeles at any point in time I, I would say this is really the time when you would hope that um, that Eric Garcetti would come out and say like I know what it is to be an Angelino and I, as I said on on Twitter I feel like what he's really saying in this statement is that he is he comes from a background of such privilege that he really can't even imagine what it is that hundreds of thousands of Angelinos are going through this weekend but he could at least act like he does because he has relatives that what? they can't imagine it. Sure. Yeah. No, and I mean like he shouldn't even have to act. It it should right. I think the the act of um empathy should be a very central part of your of your job as mayor. We're a very diverse city. It, you have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of, of others. Even or, politically, I don't yeah, go Well, ahead. I was I was going to just comment on one of our political candidates, Elizabeth Warren, who in the light of you know every, everybody has been saying this week can someone can you say something about what's happening at the border can we talk about that we right. need to get these kids out and she just says okay we're banning private prisons like that we're just getting rid of all of them right like right. that's her plan and you would love to see even something like that come out of our own local government and i that's why i love that this protest was organized at this center in Los Angeles that is basically acting as an extension in some ways of the for-profit <laughs> prison complex that's operating at the border and also in our own city. So it's yep. it's really smart to tie those things together and 
bring them out. We can only imagine if he had actually been running for president, maybe they would have come up with something. I'm glad that they did it. And just we can make fun of Bill de Blasio for being the <laughs> I mean, president. Yeah, there is only so much you can do as a mayor. The idea of like militarizing the LAPD against ICE is probably not a likely option. Right. But all the more reason, as Garcetti, to just appear in person and speak on like the most harmful possible thing that the federal government is doing right now in your city, especially pushing back against this historically unpopular president, especially like in your city. Easy one. I don't yeah. get so it. Easy. I don't one. understand. So easy. I do think that uh, this is the, the, the cops should do more as far as like blah, blah, blah. I, I agree generally with you, with what you're saying. I, I've always been kind of on the side of police have a very specific job. And when they are asked to go outside of that, typically bad things happen. So having them be para paramilitary yeah, force against just federal like enforcement not being involved doesn't really make sense. It's kind of a best case yeah, scenario in this situation. Uh, let's talk about an L.A. Times uh, article or actually a column that came out this week that we all thought was pretty interesting. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce her name, but Nita Lelyved, L-E-L-Y-V-E-L-D, uh, has just taken over the L.A. Times City Beat, the column that she did years ago and she started doing it again. Uh, I like her columns a lot, and I think I mean, she's... the columnists at the LA Times are doing the most amazing job yes. right now telling these really personal stories Absolutely. on the streets. And she's one of the most empathetic figures of anyone there and, uh, like, online. She's, like, constantly reaching out to readers and, also like, responding to Also started the My them. Day in LA hashtag yes. for anyone who uses that. And I do still maintains frequently. it, I think. Yes. Yes. And, like, I think she's uh, generally... A, like has a good sense of how people feel in the city. And I think this article is a, a really interesting example of that. The headline is LA is losing its weird edges to bland, boxy and Instagram friendly. And it's basically, it centers um, Nick Metropolis's store on La Brea. Is that right? Which is like, a, 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 you've, you've been to the store. How would you describe it? It's like a junkyard in the best way possible, <laughs> yes, but right. it has like signage that was taken off of buildings or some odd furniture. A lot of it has been salvaged from, which interestingly enough, some of the buildings that have maybe been torn down or gutted or so it's like collectibles and vintage and, you know, in Instagram friendly. In a I, way. I mean, at, yes. this, at this point, <laughs> I feel like uh, I feel like he has had more articles written about him than he probably has paying customers. Because every the, month. it's true. The place well, has he does been, do yeah. a lot of rentals to things like studios uh -huh. or, you know, props. period yeah. pieces and props. And it should be said he's not going out of business. He's just moving to West Adams. Yes, so it's, but the place has been in peril for years. Right. And there have been as it maybe should be because La Brea on that stretch of La Brea in particular, there's a lot of people and things and services. And I would argue that the best use of land is probably not a lot filled with I'm not going to uh, poke that uh, I don't know. How, I, don't know how you, I don't know how you keep that business there. I, I believe that he should, of course, be able to stay. But it's also in a place where people need to live and people work. And there are a lot of businesses that are located nearby and also the neighborhoods around it, a lot of the really old, beautiful homes are being torn down for housing because there's not enough housing maybe being built in mixed use developments on La Brea. And there should be more housing on La Brea. They're also, I mean, they're, they're well, let's get to the, like the thesis of her yes. article, which I think is, if she's not saying don't that's build housing not, on La Brea. Not, no, no, of course yes. not. So she's saying LA is weird. LA is kind of disappearing. It's being sanded down and uh, turned into something else. The, uh, there's a quote where she says, gone are our Spanish style homes with their tile roofs and arches. Our storybook houses fit for hobbits and snow white. They've all been replaced by the modern boxes now rising everywhere. So many look to me like they come from the same brand X catalog, just plop down generic building number 
number five in white anywhere and throw bright stripes or color blocks on the on the facade. I hear this all the time. This is a this is very commonly held a, a belief uh, that all new right. apartment housing and condos look the same. It's the generic uh, wood frame structure with the fiber panels on the side. Uh, Usually lime green is the accent. I feel like that's a very yeah, hot Yeah, that is a popular one. Or like a certain grays, yeah, like slate gray. It's gray. always gray. A little, a little bit too orange. Yeah. I thought it was kind of, she talks about how um, <laughs> that uh, she will lament eventually when there are no more music clubs on the Sunset Strip and uh, like the Whiskey or the Roxy or the Viper Room, uh, which I'm sure at the time those opened up there were la times calls probably being like what happened to yeah. old sunset where's the, like yeah. you know i'm sure it wouldn't take too much to find an la times article that was like man the sheriff should really go knock some heads together in <laughs> west hollywood uh but she also so the interesting thing about that criticism is the reason those buildings are built the way they are curbed has written about this a, a few times yes. i think patrick sisson has a call up <laughs> about this uh, where, but why are, why do all buildings look like that now? Well, I'm going to say they don't have to. And, and they, it's cost and it's, you know, what, what we're using to build things. It's like you said, wood frame to go beyond wood frame is expensive mm -hmm. to build. Parking is expensive. And you could have said the same thing about dingbat apartments in the 60s probably all look the same except they painted them maybe a bunch more colors than yes. lime and, green and, and, and bungalows before that all kind yeah. of look the same so, i would say they they do still look the same i mean <laughs> even even if you paint them differently they yeah fundamentally but i don't know we look back at those and we're like oh there's those are part of the fabric how amazing i mean i think these I, I agree like you go around the city and there is people trying to maximize the the space and uh for the dollar for, for the for the dollar and uh the height is a problem for a lot of people because these things are three stories where it was always known to be three stories but they didn't like that it was next to something that was two stories but i thought that was something that was so funny about that particular catalog reference is literally a lot of our homes did come out of the sears catalog and everybody did have the same houses, but painted them different colors <laughs> back in like the 1920s and 30s or earlier than that, like 1910s, 1920s. So maybe we just need to paint everything more color, different colors and everybody would feel like it was better than just white stucco or gray stucco. I don't know. I, I just have to like this entire, the, the whole premise, it's like on, on the one hand, I, I would, I, I understand people being uh, nostalgic for the things that they remember, I think that was that was something that Nita's column led to was was people reminiscing about particular yes, things. We want to talk about that in a second. Um, it's like the whole premise does very little for me. It's like to to complain about the aesthetics. Are some of these buildings really fucking ugly? Yeah, sure. Who like? But really, who cares? Kate There's Wagner at McMansion Hell wrote something about this last year, and yeah. she coined this phrase that I really like called aesthetic moralism. Right. Where the way people write about this is like there's certain kinds of architecture that are morally superior yeah. than others, and even if in this in these cases, this is how you get the cheapest housing. Right. If you upgrade from those are called Hardy panels, those like fiber things that you see on all these buildings. If you go up from there to metal siding. It's like four times as expensive. This I, I read this in Patrick's but, it, but it's also like we have a lot of really amazing new development. Like I went on a tour with Lorcan O'Herlihy, who is an amazing multifamily developer and does the most beautiful houses and apartment buildings and big, small, high-income, mm -hmm. low-income, you know, everything. And it doesn't take that much thought to actually make it right. look good 
or to make it just look like a knockoff of they, a Spanish apartment. They do, <laughs> they, do, they do stuff that is probably going to last, I would say. Not everything is going to last, and some things are going to last longer than people would like. And I would But it still, costs more. to. I mean, exactly. Like, I would still say it doesn't really matter that much at the end of the day. People need places to live is like the... the it, when you have somebody who is making an argument that we should put these concerns that are fundamentally aesthetic in nature, that are about the what does the city of Los Angeles look like and what should it look like, and we're placing those concerns even on a par with the question of we have 500,000 fewer apartments than we need, people don't have places to live, yeah. they're falling into homelessness at unprecedented rates, who gives a fuck what it looks like? Really, who cares? What yeah. does it matter? Okay, and if people did care, I'm just completely going to hijack this conversation because if you are that worried, there are cities like, say, Santa Barbara and and Palm Springs where they have something called form-based code where that means that to build something, it has to look like they're idealized. They're in both, both of those cases. It's kind of like this mission-style yeah. Spanish colonial architecture, which is problematic in maybe a different way if sure. you were uh, Speaking of colonized, if you were colonized <laughs> by the Spanish, right? But this seems to be like the the path of least resistance for housing, especially in Southern California. Like if you build something Spanish colonial, people will be like, oh, that's great. It fits in perfectly. That's exactly what I wanted. But do we want these people building housing to go through yet another design review and to say you can only have, you know, yes. this archway door in the front of your building to be able to build it here. And that's why things like HPOZ zones, historic preservation overlay zones are kind of a problem yeah. when it comes to building more housing because they've suppressed, they've kept this old style charm that we talk about that people seem to miss and are, you know, crying about on the internet every day. And some, and sometimes for good reason, but also it's designed sometimes to suppress new housing from being built of any kind. Carthay Circle yeah. is the poster child <laughs> for that. Like, subtweet. And I think Nita is this is very patronizing, but I think she's very well meaning here. And I, I think there is a, an affection for like working class weirdness. Yeah. And what and like in the way she's writing and lamenting these like new condos, which are theoretically for rich people. But who are we keeping out if we're saving the storybook cottages for hobbits and, yeah. and we're keeping out the modern boxes? Well, you like, have to say that it's not, it's, you know, other people coming to conquer the hobbits, perhaps, like who are trying right. to. <laughs> yeah. Who, yeah. Who I mean, I, I really do think, yeah. So the, the things that we're lamenting, uh, aside from things that are, are perhaps not reclaimable because, like, you're not putting Instagram back in the box or, or whatever, but, uh, Things people are lamenting having passed are the the byproducts of Los Angeles being a place where the cost of living was relatively low and uh, and wages were high. And now the inverse is true. This is a, a low wage service economy uh, metropolitan area where the cost of living is artificially extremely high. And you can't have those things and have it be a place where a working class person can build the Watts Towers, for example. That's not possible because uh, that person is working three jobs and coming home and wondering why they don't just move to fucking Vegas. And until you restore the conditions in, in which working class people can live comfortable lives, 
that weirdness cannot exist here. So it's it's a lower consideration in, in my book. But it's not just those houses that people are lamenting. I've actually seen other another LA Times columnist lament a tire shop that was being replaced by right. by that this kind of uh, blocky housing. But also in her reply, she solicited responses for what are the what's the weirdness that you miss in LA. Uh, and Alyssa, you pointed out that multiple people responded with different medians. That yeah, are... it's like this. The beloved protected medians. Won't somebody think of the medians? And I could read this in the same, save our medians. It sounds like Armenians. Right? Save our medians. One respondent said, <laughs> Metro is supposedly trying to build bus lanes through Colorado Boulevard and Eagle Rock, which could potentially mean removing the median that gives the area its famed small town vibes. And as I stared in disbelief and tried to, <laughs> tried to respond to this, luckily somebody responded and was like, who, who he said, respond? it was a guy named Siddharth Kapoor responded, I'm sympathetic to this because I also like medians, but I looked it up and it looks just like an ordinary median. <laughs> <laughs> someone else responded to that and I think it was maybe Vamanos LA that was like, the reason the median is there is because it actually was a streetcar that went through Eagle Rock. And yep. for example, that is what made gave the city its small town charm that exists yes. today. Not a median yeah. in the middle of a two-way street. And the person was like, oh, I, I didn't know about that. I had no idea. So what are we trying to and if protect? The, and if the streetcar were to come back, I would create <laughs> Save Eagle Rock. <laughs> well, they are. They had a meeting, too, about, about right. BRT this week. And oh, a bunch of people were really worried about for, you know, ruining Colorado. that you know, others coming parking. in and all these people. But this is the thing. Like, we can only remember as far back as our own memories of what made L.A. great. And if you are going to complain about a median that's being lost, uh, I don't even know where we begin to try to build more housing and transit yeah. through our neighborhood. Not on the medians. I think we could, though. We could squeeze in like a bunch of... Like... We're going long this week. We're going to talk to Pavo in one second. I just want to talk briefly about this Costco uh, shooting. An off-duty police officer in the, at the Costco in Corona, uh, Salvador Sanchez, uh, got into some kind of altercation with a man named Kenneth French. This story made a lot of headlines, but uh, Kenneth French was there with his parents. Sanchez's lawyers say that French pushed Sanchez while Sanchez was holding his 18-month-old child. And then Sanchez was knocked unconscious at some point, and then he woke up and started shooting and killed Kenneth French and also shot and injured both of Kenneth French's parents. Uh, this is a completely bizarre narrative at this point. There's just a weird lack of clarifying detail on the whole thing but supposedly all these different departments are investigating i assume there's security footage that yeah. we have yet to see french was uh he had a mental disability His he was non-verbal non right yes uh and the la times editorial said would uh this person salvador sanchez be in jail currently if he weren't a police officer undoubtedly on an off-duty police officer if uh, he were brought in alive yes Yes. And also, uh, there was video released of the shooting of Ryan Twyman. Uh, he's a 24-year-old uh, unarmed man by two sheriff's deputies in Willowbrook. And the video showed that basically he was in his car uh, in a parking lot and two deputies approached his car. And one of them opens the back passenger door uh, and Twyman starts backing up and he sort of corrals the deputy in the door. And both of them uh, pull out their guns and they uh, fire 34 times and they kill them. Uh, so there are a lot of protests going on in Willowbrook about that as well. Let's get into Pabo Monkinen. We are waiting to see if our local governments will assemble together uh, and decide to force themselves to build more housing. Listen to our conversation with Pabo to find out how that goes. Welcome to Dr. Pavo Monkinen, who is uh, the Associate Professor of uh, Urban Planning and Public Policy at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. 
Is that correct? That's exactly. Right. <laughs> I'm beaten up by Maddie Brosen this week correctly because I I, I confused the Luskin and Lewis centers, uh, which I Whoa. which oh yeah, there's That's must like... happen all the time. I'm sure Luskin they're... gave a lot more money than Lewis. Now <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Pavo, you are also an ex officio member of the Southern California Association of Governments. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the in- Skag. the inter county group that uh, it sounds like a symptom. Determines uh, determines uh, a number of things with relationship uh, with relation to uh, urban planning uh, conversations happening in Southern California. In particular, you're involved in regional housing needs assessment uh, development. That is something that has been in the news lately because uh, there was a vote taken just in the past couple of weeks where SCAG, I think, kind of disappointed a lot of people who have been watching the housing crisis closely in our state and maybe didn't see the commitment to alleviating that by the uh, the, the government members of, of SCAG. So welcome to you, first of all, but we're excited to, to talk to you a bit about this issue. Do Thanks. we want to break down SCAG and RENA a little bit for the people that may, it sounds like a sit in there. Yeah, now it sounds uh, like, yeah, now it sounds more like a variety show, <laughs> which it might be if Pavo is telling the truth from Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good idea. Maybe, I, I, since I missed the first segment, maybe can I tell an LA story? Hey, yes, we <laughs> do. Great. So I gave a talk at a retreat for a board of a nonprofit uh, at Terranea yesterday. And so I gave my standard zoning reform spiel and kind of how do we put uh, multifamily into single family neighborhoods. That's where we do our annual LA podcast retreat. <laughs> we spend three <laughs> weeks at yes, Terranea. It's yeah. not savvy. Uh, so <laughs> I wait for that. And so part of the talk is talking about this turning point in politics. And I use the Prop U and the Measure S votes as kind of this symmetrical 70% yeah. for Prop U and 70% against Measure S. And, you know, of course, I said downzoning is bad and Prop U is this kind of peak downzoning of L.A. And then afterwards, a woman came up to me and said, oh, yeah, this was so interesting. Thanks so much. I actually wrote Prop U. Oh, <laughs> my it was, uh, Cindy Misikowski. That's former great. I mean, LA, honestly, somebody did somebody she work in Zev's office? She worked for Zev, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, but so, and it was, the great thing was she said, and you know what? I've kind of changed my thinking on this a lot. Um, and I think actually we should be putting oh. multifamily into single family neighborhoods. Yeah. So how about that? You should go on the yeah. record, yeah. <laughs> so, but this is a good place to start yeah. because one of the examples I always use from when you shout out the these numbers of housing, like how many housing these cities are supposed to build, I always use like Palos Verdes and and some of these places. So can you explain through the frame of what these numbers mean through, you know, a community like that that you are in? Yeah, well, I can. Well, maybe for the arena thing, maybe it's best to think about it in two ways. So there's this kind of regional number. The, The vote recently at SCAG was about what the overall region's housing unit capacity should be. And then there's this kind of allocation of that big regional number to different cities. Um, so the vote now was for the whole Southern California for the region, six how county much, region, the yeah. big number of how many right, housing units right, they need, right. and then they chop it up. Exactly. And so that. this is a big, I mean, so this cycle is a big deal because of the two bills passed last year, 828, SPA 28, AB 1771, that really reformed the way the process works. So the, the SCAG discussion was interesting because a lot of the electeds had experience in previous RENA cycles. And so they were there kind of with the same expectations about what was to be done and kind of the approach to this. So that's kind of, I think, why ultimately the regional council voted to just do, basically they voted to not consider the SBA 28 provisions, which add kind of consideration for existing need and just to follow with the, the kind of previous precedent of just looking at projected need. Yeah. Let's explain within that explainer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, 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 <laughs> right. we've definitely, we've talked about all this stuff before on the show, but I just want to make sure everyone knows what each of these individual bills is, what SBA 28 did 
how Rena used to be calculated and how you guys were trying to recalculate it this this cycle. I think I, let, let's actually talk about SCAG itself first. I think right. this is something. Yeah. So, um, explainer and an explainer. Yeah. Southern, <laughs> the Southern California Association of Governments, uh, something that we've been referring to. As you mentioned, this is a six county region. So, can you talk about? what SCAG actually is. Why does it have any power over uh, the, the housing capacity as you were? While you do that, to. I'm going to figure out a new acronym based on the six counties, which are LA, Riverside, <laughs> Imperial, right? Yep. Orange, San Diego. No. Nope. San, San, San Bernardino. Bernardino. Brutal. Wow. Well, it's Hazel really <laughs> Okay. So SCAG, yeah. what is it? So, Who are these people? So SCAG was set up uh, as a metropolitan planning organization in the 60s, right? So in the 60s, the federal government and the state government said in order to get transportation money, yep. um, you know, there has to be a coordination at a regional level for projects. So that was kind of its main function, and that's still the biggest thing it does. And then in the 80s, when the housing planning started happening at the regional level, SCAG is kind of the de facto uh, housing planning agency as well. But it's a voluntary. I mean, the housing planning is a little vague in terms of kind of the legal mandate versus the voluntariness of what scale you do it at. And so there's actually this question of whether in this cycle, whether Orange County was going to form a sub region okay. to do its own arena planning process. Right. I mean, when you think about uh, the six counties that we're talking about, that's, uh, you know, 18 plus million people. Right. It's uh, a geographically sprawling area. It's not necessarily clear, I think, that that there are concerns that are broadly shared across all of these regions, although um, potentially we do now see some things that are affecting everybody right. in there. Yeah, I mean, so, right, that's a good point. And I think that, you know, that's one thing SCAG staff will talk about a lot is how we have 191 cities and Sandag only has 19 and it's a big problem for them. I think kind of where you put the border of a region can vary a lot. You know, commute shed is kind of the normal one. And so there's probably not many people commuting from, you know, Bakersfield or, I mean, Palm Springs or kind of El Centro to, to L.A., but mm -hmm. I think once you use counties, then you you include a little bit of Riverside County in the LA, greater LA region, then you include all of Riverside County. And so it just gets that much bigger, bigger and bigger. I, I think one of the things that we've seen, uh, so like talking about uh, metropolitan planning organizations, which have their origin in uh, in the 60s during this time when the federal government was trying to encourage greater uh, centralization and planning in, in metropolitan areas. Um, one of the things that we've seen over time is that these organizations like SCAG that didn't originally have all that much uh, um, actual teeth to the to the recommendations that they would put out. Uh, the government of California has been gradually trying to increase the amount of power that they have. Housing elements, which are going to be a major part of the discussion that we're having, um, the housing elements used to be completely advisory and counties and mm -hmm. cities, local cities push back. Uh, very hard against the notion that any larger regional government should be able to tell them what to do. So I think now, can we talk a bit about what RENA, the, this regional housing needs assessment is and how it would potentially affect individual cities if uh, the recommendations that SCAG was making were enforceable? Yeah, no, it's a good point. And, and it's interesting too, kind of in terms of this balance of powers between the state and the, and the local government speak with the regional government being you know, the staff directed by electeds mm -hmm. from different cities, you know, they're really just aggregating the preferences of different cities right. and they're not functioning as a regional government, you, as, as you might want a regional government to function in terms of kind of telling cities what, what they do. need to do, right? Yeah, William and, Fulton writes about this in The Reluctant Metropolis, which right. I talk a lot about how SCAG was basically formed where like instead of the state telling cities what to do, the cities could basically form this unit that was made up of them that could like try to tell them what 
to do and that they could just say no to basically more yeah. easily and led by the most kind of active cities kind of and in terms of housing that's i think what you've seen is that the cities that are most interested in not building housing are the ones that show up to all the meetings yeah. and get on the committees and run the run the show they, right they yeah. have the just most like the population is within cities. most vested interest in the status quo i mean it's it's kind of an interesting uh if, if you think about it there's there's a parallel almost with the structure of the united nations which i think a lot of people are probably a lot more familiar with where you have uh, independent sovereign nations that are coming together and saying uh, we want to steer the direction that uh, these different polities are going to plan things in the future but also they're they are by virtue of being composed of these nations with all these individual interests it's like we're expecting those people those same people to police themselves right. and restrict the amount of power that they have skag is kind of functioning in a yeah, uh, on the yeah, same logic. And the boardroom looks like the United Nations as well. Does it? <laughs> That's, so, that was my first thought when I went in there. But yeah, so, so in terms of the regional housing planning process, how it's happened is kind of along this vein where until now, the state through this population projection has created this regional number that SCAG needs to zone for, right? So 500, it's been 600,000, it's been 450,000 um, in terms of projected growth. And the way SCAG has done it until now is they go city to city and they ask cities basically, project your growth. And then so far, the region's individual, you know, the aggregation of individual cities projected growth has added up to that big number. So everything's been fine. The problem with it, of course, is that fine for the cities the of like Sky, right? the entire state <laughs> becoming unlivable. Right. And because especially, you're right. So if you look at the past numbers, as we have, uh, we'll put it in the show notes, this research paper, my student, Shine Ling, wrote about kind of where the, the zone capacity has been in Skag in the last three cycles. It's cities with land left. So cities yeah. in the outlying parts, cities in Imperial County and in cities in, in Riverside County and not cities kind of where if you were doing a top-down planning exercise, you would want to pressure to build more housing. The number that often gets mentioned is that Beverly Hills gave its projected growth as three, uh, not three buildings, three units. Right. Uh, and that became their housing obligation for that year. It was all kind of self, and, self-reported. And when the process was one of just kind of, we need to work together to come up with this big number, no matter where it yes. goes in the region, that's that kind of made right. sense. It's I mean, Montessori school grading. Right. Like, how do you <laughs> but think then you now, did this right. Now that the, that the governor wants to make these numbers mean something, like if they, we're going to use these as a valid measure of something, uh, need, then we need to calculate them in a totally different way, right? Right. So uh, to come from the the latter part of the 20th century into the, the present day a bit more, uh, we've seen legislators in Sacramento say SCAG should, by virtue of being this pre-existing uh, regional government structure uh, in, in all parts of the state, SCAG should be more involved in helping the state battle climate change. I think during the, the governorship of Arnold Schwarzenegger, we saw the passage of uh, SB 375, uh, which was di- intended to tie housing development to accessible public transportation. Uh, we've seen more pushes like that recently that are really saying these regional government structures are going to have more enforceable power going forward. So can you talk a bit about your experience uh, having been in the room as SCAG discussions are happening around planning is this, a, is this a responsibility that the leaders appear to be taking seriously? Do you see changes that are happening actually that are meaningful in the way that Southern Californian planning is happening? That's a great question. <laughs> just say whatever you're thinking. <laughs> don't, don't, just talk. Well, no, could, like, not really, like, not ha- really. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the conversation has mostly been about how do we do this process in a way that has a low number 
region. I mean, thus far, we focus mostly on the overall regional number of housing units for uh, for Skag, and it's mostly been about we don't want to have a too big of a number because how could we accommodate? All right, because then they'll units. make us build all this. Right. And, so so like, yeah. and so, I, like, I wrote this scathing yes. response to the the report issued by Skag staff, um, just because they kind of bend over backwards to use every possible invention to to have reduce the number and spread it out over three cycles and all these different things. So it seems like they're not trying to implement the and, new and law the cycle is how long eight years yeah. eight years eight years right. so, so i'll be dead in eight years yeah well <laughs> <laughs> but so but how could it so with the beverly hills example knowing the mayor of beverly hills and that he goes on facebook groups and like posts well, he's also a frequent like, attendee of skag yeah well, regional. That, that's what i'm saying like <laughs> what? He, but he's trying to part he, of course he is he's like the mayor of skag but he <laughs> he um he goes on on these like facebook he goes on like the culver city facebook pages and complains about like too many people moving to Beverly Hills and also people getting like priced out of Beverly Hills and uses a lot of these arguments to, you know, make, you know, he's out there. He's not shy about it. Right. But then you have cities like maybe Rolling Hills or Palos Verdes, like I was talking about, like they, they have zero, right. They have, their number is zero. Like, how do you get away with being a zero? I mean, I'm not just calling these cities zeros, but like, how do you go in there and honestly say, no, we're we full. Well, we do nothing. Well, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the cities have in their minds this idea of fairness. So, it, so we in this committee we had an explicit discussion. What do you think fairness means in terms of regional housing obligations? I love this thing, the rolls and, and a lot of this, exactly. <laughs> they brought in that no, picture of the stools of different heights, right? And a lot of the cities were saying, you know, is it fair for you to force me to have apartment buildings? You know, we're an equestrian city and we have all these horses and, and, you know, always the horses. it's unfair to it's the, 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 the people, horses. the future residents of those apartment buildings would have all those smells and the flies um, oh, wafting over there. They, they, yeah, it's a very concerned equestrian city. Um, so, I mean, you know, cities, I think it goes you back to this idea of, in the room. If, of, you know, <laughs> yeah, of, why don't the horses have a say in this? I would say of like cities as a sovereign kind of entity. I think yeah. a lot of people think about it like that. And, you know, I actually had this discussion at the at the retreat in Terranea the other day with someone that was saying, you know, cities have this power that is land use planning. And so how dare the dictator in Sacramento try to come and take that away from them? And I said, well, cities are creations of the state, right? I mean, they have their powers under state constitution. They don't have a constitution. They're not sovereign entities. Right. So, but they, they think of themselves that way. Yeah. Trying to be. I, I think that this notion is, in, so you said not really, but things have not particularly changed, except by your description, it sounds like uh, the people that are involved in, in leading SCAG are basically trying to figure out ways in which they can stay on the right side of the new laws that have been passed in right. Sacramento while still getting the outcome that they want, which is right. as few new units as possible. And I, think, I mean, I think kind of the, the good faith intention would be the true fear that if the number's huge and Beverly Hills, you know, which quote unquote has a zone capacity of a thousand right now, mm -hmm. if they were to have to zone for 5,000 houses, which would involve rezoning single family neighborhoods, it would create this kind of crazy backlash that would destroy democracy in California. Oh, or something. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the good faith worry. Right. And so they're thinking, well, if we can get them to up it, 20% instead of five times yeah, as much, right. then that they would be like a, again. a feasible, <laughs> you know, outcome. So I think that that's kind of the... Will Rogers isn't coming back. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing that uh, imperils democracy like the presence of people, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I think that you're right. That That is probably the, the fear of local elected officials that they are on the front lines if if these numbers are to go up considerably. And there, um, and there are some elements of kind of revising how, housing elements right. to expand zoning capacity a great deal that would be complicated. Yeah. And I think that's why the governor put $250 million or something in planning grants. I mean, there's some kind of technicalities that would take work to actually rezone 
neighborhoods, et cetera. But I mean, that's just, if that's what you have to do, that's what you have to do. You don't have to kind of block it. Can we, can we talk a bit about, um, the actual, the actual plan that was passed by SCAG and your response to that and what you think that they, they should do instead or should have done instead? Yeah. I mean, so the, the actual, so right, there's this SBA 28 introduced this idea of existing need. So part of the planning process in this is projecting need based on population growth and household formation. And that part is fairly uncontroversial. I think the number you could, you know, depending on the methodology you use to project population, you could have got 480,000 and they did the one that got 430,000. Okay, fine. But then there's another part that's existing need, which 828 explicitly says you have to look at overcrowding and exist and cost burden households. And so, you know, it was vague in the law to some extent, how you use the presence of overcrowding and cost burdenness to create a new number of units you need to zone for. Um, but they, you know, so the SCAG staff report tried to, uh, to look at overcrowding in a certain way, uh, looking at comparable regions. And then they said, oh, the cost burden stuff is too complicated. We're just going to give all our data to HCD and let HCD figure it out. And so that's kind of what made me mad because they didn't even try. They just said, oh, it's complicated, throw our hands up and kind of pass the buck. Um, so the SCAG staff report and the Community Economic and Human Development Committee of SCAG actually voted to endorse the SCAG staff report. And then the regional council had this counter motion to only accept the projected need number and exclude the existing need stuff completely, which is kind of, that's where it really gets at evading the SBA 28. Right. And when we talk about housing need, this is kind of the difference between single family zoned cities that we sort of talk about a lot and neighborhoods that are currently multifamily zoned, but are like too, like too many people in a unit right now that like, is it that kind of distinction in terms of overcrowding? Overcrowding. Yeah. So it doesn't, I don't think the A28 had the specific definition. So, but the the U.S. census definition is more than one person per room. Okay. But I mean, overcrowding is, you could subjectively define it in different sure. ways. And, but there are huge parts of LA that are- Yeah, I mean, so are, we have the highest that. overcrowding rate in the nation. It's mm-hmm. like 9.8%. And so one of the one of the things that I think, so Abundant Housing is working on a letter right now um, to, to talk about kind of what a, a good, what a reasonable uh, regional need would be. And the SCAG approach has been, we have an uh, overcrowding rate of 9.8%. How many units would we need to bring it down to the national average, for example, or the average of a comparable region, rather than bringing it down to zero? Um, so if you if you want to bring it down to zero, then you get six hundred thousand more houses. If you want to bring it down to like the rate of a comparable region, you get two hundred thousand houses. But it's this kind of thing where you know why not be ambitious and right. try to like build enough housing so that no one is overcrowded, um, and also with the kind of caveat that these are zoning changes rather than actually houses being built. Right. So you know that is even always if you a zone major, for yeah. you know six hundred thousand. How many of those are actually going to get built? That's always a major, uh, I think, sticking point in in these discussions is that people, when you say, uh, for instance, uh, to take a, a local example, uh, the Hollywood community plan is going to increase the. I think the one in twenty twelve was going to increase the number of uh, residential units by something like 15 to 20%. People respond to that as though overnight there are going to be that many more people living in Hollywood when of course that is not the case and it wouldn't be, uh, it would be a change that took place over several decades. The counterpoint is that, uh, by delaying doing something like that by 10 years, you're actually delaying the intended effect by like 50 years or, or what have you. So that in, in turn becomes very dangerous. Skag is not the the final say in this though, are they? Are they are do they have basically is the low number that was proposed now final? Or uh, I, I saw uh, Senator Weiner had made some comment about the state being able to reject the proposal by Skag as written. Yeah, yeah. So the the good news is that HCD has the final say on this methodology. So actually, the Skag kind of proposal and agreement wasn't 
actually that important. So mm. HDD is going to come in August with the final determination for the regional number. The, the, the challenge is, the tricky part is, the second step in the methodology process for this regional planning is how do we allocate that regional number down to cities? Right. And AB 1771 did reform that process, but it didn't give the final say to HCD. Uh-huh. So coming so up over the next year, yeah, play, pay attention because over the next they'll be, year, they'll be back on the show. We'll yeah, right. I mean, again. it's, it's going to be really interesting. Um, and 1771 uh, it, it is a big improvement over how things had been done in the past. Um, it asks SCAG to use objective measures, I think is the language. There's something about objective standards yeah. or something that makes it not just kind of this arbitrary uh, city's own projection of growth method. So I'm optimistic about that process too, but it doesn't say at the end of the day, HCD decides. What about LA's role? Because the leadership likes to put it out there that we built more housing than any other large city in the in the state, right? You know, so we we're doing our part, but they, for the most part, our leaders were not at these meetings or not speaking up for doing more. Yeah, I mean, it's a big shame. I mean, uh, you know, so uh, props to Long Beach for showing up. Rex Richardson is a, uh, elected from Long Beach and he's, I think, vice president of the regional council and he was doing great there. Um, but so, you know, that's a big city showing up and doing its part. But L.A. has 15, 16 votes out of 90 or something uh-huh. on the regional council. So, you know, only one council person showed up. Who, Who was that? Uh, David Rio. Oh. And uh, the mayor didn't show up. Yeah. Right. And so this is, uh, I mean, it's embarrassing. I think, I hope the LA Times coverage of this has publicly shamed them yeah, I mean, I think, a little bit. Yeah, because, I think people don't know. know how this works and they, th- that was good to really good right. to see that op-ed and they were very critical and, and really taught people. But I'm, I, I just can't believe that this wouldn't be if all right. these people are standing up there voting against say SB 50 or saying, you know, oh, we're, we're, we're doing our part. We're th- this, this won't, it's not going to work for us. It's not building enough affordable housing or whatever. And then not going to this seemingly very critical. And SCAG meets in, in downtown LA. Right. Right. It's, yeah. not it's not like, like they a, have to go out to Duarte. Not, yeah. Duarte comes from that. Not even them. going to Terranea. You're right there. In, we, we have people that go. Yeah, yeah maybe, they telling, should move it. maybe they should move it. We have people from Imperial County coming to downtown <laughs> Los yeah, Angeles. El Centro. And and we don't have people from City Hall coming to downtown Los Angeles. That's that's troubling. Um, I, I am yeah, curious. So traffic would be better yeah, if think, they changed the house. Yeah, I feel like they should. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it, I mean, it is kind of hypocritical to say, you know, don't the Sacramento can't tell us exactly where to rezone. We are going to do that. We have local power, and then kind of when it comes time to to be ambitious with that local power, crickets. Does it? Does it? Uh, does when SCAG is making these allocations, since they do still have the uh, the the final say as to the relative share that we're going to allocate housing for the next eight or more years in cities in Southern California, do we consider a, a housing unit in L.A. to be the same as the, a housing unit in Maywood or in El Centro? Like, is, does do we care where those are going or are they just raw numbers? Yeah, raw numbers. And it's a good point, actually, going back to what you were saying previously about kind of how much of this actually gets built. And I think one of the problems is that previous, you know, so L.A., the SCAG region actually has a zoned capacity of over a million units. If you mm-hmm. add up every city's housing elements zoned capacity. Just so much of it is in the outlying areas where there's low demand, it's not getting built. Right. So that's why if you rezone, you know, if you added a bunch more zoned capacity in West LA, it would get built at a much higher rate than the zone capacity kind of where there's not demand. So it is a problem that everything is treated equally to some extent in that way. Going back to the LA Times coverage, I do want to mention uh, one of the quotes that uh, sort of made headlines from the SCAG meetings, which was, uh, it was a council member or mayor of Duarte? Former mayor? Uh, former council member, yeah. Yes. 
uh, who was referring to actually uh, speaking in support of uh, affordable housing uh, being built, saying that not everyone uh, who gets Section 8 uh, is a, quote, skid row person. It's not all skid row people who are going to come into your cities and uh, commit crimes. As she said, happened in Duarte. I'm paraphrasing, but you were there. Uh, is that is that a fair representation yeah, of? Yeah. I mean, it was uh, shocking. There's there's been some really shocking kind of ways of looking at the world. That yeah, I've, I was going to ask, I've is heard. that like sort of consistent with the tenor of the conversation I mean, about no, housing yeah. at these meetings? No, I mean that one stood out compared to what yeah. other people say, and I don't think everyone on and the committee said, thinks like that. But yeah, it was they're the not shocking all Skid Row people. Some of them are like her grandson, correct? Who are <laughs> good, like students right. uh, yeah. who could like right. use affordable yeah, housing. Yeah, I mean, I think so the intention was trying to say, oh, don't think about uh, fair share housing and kind of subsidized housing as only benefiting Skid Row people, yes. which is just like a shock. It could also benefit my grandson. <laughs> I love it. But that yeah, means- I mean, there, you know, that was, that was uh, shocking to me, and I'm glad that Liam followed up on that. I tried to share with her evidence by the premier scholar of uh, the connection between crime and subsidized housing, my colleague Mike Lenz, and she kind of didn't want to look at it. So uh, that was that was distressing. Um, I'm going to do some digging on her grandson too, <laughs> see if he's ever <laughs> this, is, this is kind of like, a, uh, I think, something that is a through line in Southern California uh, politics, this notion that um, apartments lead to the, the presence of undesirable people. I, I think it, these comments are... A, you know, exemplify that in a, in a particularly nasty way. Um, but to say like, it's okay to have apartments because like, don't worry, you, you don't have to take like section eight people or, or mm-hmm. whatever is it, it's, it's very indicative of, uh, uh the d- discriminatory train of thought that I think runs through the mind of a lot of these, uh, local city politicians and, and homeowners and in yeah. places. And it's, 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 uh, it's unfortunate that still only, governs yeah, I mean, the discussion. It's, it's amazing. And it's not only in their minds, it's codified in city planning. You know, the general plan of L.A. starts out with our main goal is protecting residential neighborhoods, which are only yeah. neighborhoods with single family houses in them. Mm-hmm. You know, people that live in apartments aren't resident. Right. I mean, it's really this crazy discrimination that we have embedded in all of our in all of our planning codes. Really. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to say what does it take to undo that, but um, but I am I am curious, like in your opinion, and having having been uh, on the scene as a, a lot of the the state level reforms have started to be rolled out, uh, whether we're talking about SB three seven five or uh, SB eight two eight, are state legislators on the right path? Do you think that this is a strategy that will ultimately lead to change, or or what is your opinion of, of how things have progressed so far? Yeah, I think I mean I think you know the kind of there's two directions in the zoning reform movement in California, right? So the SB fifty effort is kind of where the state picks the parcels that will have their uh, land upzoned. The Rena process approach is more the local control let the cities. I mean, it, ultimately, it seems like that one will be more effective perhaps if cities actually do it i mean it's going to lead to a lot of lawsuits I'm, i guess i'm not sure which one is going to be more effective but meanwhile oregon this week yeah approved maybe that's a better approach 2001 <laughs> hb 2001 so this is the fourplex across the whole state right thing, yeah right? or is it is it four, it is four plexes, yes. right yeah so four plexes i never know if it always gets like changed to triplex at the last minute right but but this is the dream triplex plus an 80 triplex <laughs> but this is the dream right this would yeah. be this would solve we've talked about this before this would solve a lot of our problems if it was just be it's a simple thing and it's not going to like change that many people's lives like what you were talking about Yes, Oregon state government seems really healthy right now. I was going to say, I'm not, I'm not sure that that even passed yet because well, the, of the, yeah, part the terrorists. Of it got, it passed whatever. the House, 
But then the Senate, I guess the the Republicans fled before the Senate could yeah. uh, talk about it. But yeah, maybe they're here. They're maybe we can back. get them to. <laughs> yeah. Before the militia the was was formed uh, to stop climate change uh, reform and also yes. zoning reform, but. But they did get that pass yeah, no, I mean, which is exciting. Either I think either way, it's gonna there's gonna be backlash, obviously, to this. To either way, and you know we'll see how it plays out. I think some cities will resist much more vigorously and with many more lawsuits than other cities. But you know probably if we can get it through more cities than not. I mean if we do kind of the complete overhaul of R1, then maybe that gets taken back in a lawsuit. I don't know. I'm R1 not really being single family. Single family, yeah. Like versus that, yeah. kind of the forcing cities to pick their own areas to upzone. I think the governor needs to do more on that front. Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> I think it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, is it incompetence or just not keeping your eye on the ball? It's just I, I don't know what kind of the backseat, the Monday morning quarterbacking of this yeah. year's legislative session is pretty. Well, still we have we have a budget, but we don't really know what the housing part of the budget is actually going to. Is that still mm-hmm. the case? You know, so we right. have this like very vaporous. It's a lot of money, but we don't know who gets that money or what it's for. Certainly right? the, the gubernatorial role looks very different than it did when uh, Jerry Brown was in the in the driver's seat, as you might expect. And the conductors, I don't know. What is, what is the <laughs> corresponding train metaphor? Anyway, I knew that if I... With a horses. I knew that I could uh, soften you up enough, Pava, that you could take a shot at the governor. I, mean, like I, you know, <laughs> I think it's, he, says, he says the right things. I just wish he had been more involved from the beginning. I, I mean, you know, the, I guess the generous interpretation is he just didn't realize mm-hmm. what was going to happen and, and wasn't yep. paying enough attention. Um, I mean, I think that's maybe what happened, but it's too bad. I mean, and now, you know, I'm not sure what you can do uh, in terms of legislation this year, but, mm-hmm. you know, you at least talk about it are doing. You can do it places like Inglewood and, you know, are doing the, the rent control yeah. part of it, right? So like, but we as a city could also do the R1 part of it, right? right. The city of Los right. Angeles could so anyways, vote they can do wh- this week. Whatever they want. Yep. Yeah, so we could strengthen the rental things right. and we could also- The affordability requirements. Stre- yeah, stre- yeah. yeah, keep, you know, do more inclusive zoning and do whatever, you know, all these other things. And then we could say, hey, you could build more than one thing on that right. lot. Yeah. No, yeah, and I think that kind of the progressive housing package- could be put together at kind of so Culver City just to plug Culver City right now it's a terrible city in many ways they've they have 60,000 60, jobs the heart of Screenland it's a terrible city in many ways and they've been been, uh, the poor Facebook pages are being dominated by the mayor of Beverly Hills I I grew up there so I'm allowed to I'm allowed it's a love it's a love hate um but so it's like city with 60,000 jobs and 17,000 houses, right? Oh. But And I wrote about that. I wrote, yeah. yeah, I wrote about, I pulled those numbers and it was, you say, but I, I like my jaw rarely right. drops when I'm reporting and it dropped, right? The numbers, yeah. right? And the, you know, the population, I was born there in 1978 and the population was 38,000 and today the population is 39,000, right? Cow. So it's like a no change mantra. But their, so on, their but, housing cost of, the value oh, of yeah, a house sure, there right, has right. like doubled. Yeah, the it's, cost of entry has not, more yeah. than doubled. Well, yeah, more, more than doubled. Yeah, well, Are we getting to the good thing? Yeah. The good part is <laughs> Monday, this Monday, the city council is going to be hearing a uh, rent control initiative. Great. And combined with, and so I encourage everyone to go check it out, uh, combined with kind of assembling a housing package there. So they've got some great progressive city council people now, and we're talking about doing uh, upzoning, rent control, subsidies, kind of the whole 
That's the whole great thing. because all of their buildings were built before 1979. But record draw basically everything, right? No, I think it's not all of them, but most of them. Okay. Yeah. But most yeah. of the growth, I mean, I call, I agree that there have some really progressive people who are really kind of just were blindsided by this and like, oh, wait, we actually didn't build anything. It was like right. 15, the, the period I wrote about for my story about aging, people who wanted to live there. It's a, mm. There's a lot of like older people who live in Culver City, mm-hmm. went to stay there, nowhere for them to live. And it was like, 15 units have been built or whatever, but most of the things that are being built are now being built on the fringe of Culver City. So it's that same thing. You're pushing development or bigger, bigger projects to like right over the edge in, in LA, but the city itself. But that is kind of an interesting upzoning strategy. I'm not, I'm surprised more cities don't do that. Just like radically upzone their borders. Yeah. It, that, that right. Like where, they, where yeah. they put the town dump. Right. Like, exactly. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, cause apartment houses are mere parasites, yeah, right? Just upzone the, dump. Yeah. <laughs> the county does that. That's I think they're known for doing that. County. Yeah, that's Tone Ranch. Pablo, thank you for yeah, coming on pleasure. the show. You'll have to come back. I'm sorry you didn't get the whole episode like Mike Lenz, no, but Elsa didn't get hit by a car the week that he was on. So we had to, <laughs> so we had to talk about that. Um, and yeah, I guess so. I'll just, if you want to stay tuned, July 22nd is the next meeting of the Arena subcommittee at SCAC. Great. So. I'm sure it'll be packed. Did, with who our do listeners. we talk? I mean, do we try to convince our council members to go? I mean, what yeah, should I think we so. and you just can, I mean, shame mine's that. going, it sounds like. Well, so they're going to take public comment. I think on the regional determination, it's kind of in HCD's hand. Um, the They're going to take public comment on the methodology to allocate to cities. So that's going to be a place where people can get involved. So send math experts to this. Would anyone like to hear my new acronym, sort of more pleasant alternative right. to okay. the gag? Okay. Bloris. 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 That one. Yeah, nice, right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll be back next week on LA Podcast. Bye bye. LA Podcast.